Chapter Three of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter Three: Nature's Building Material. A common way of classifying natural objects is suggested by the familiar questions: Is it animal? Is it vegetable? Is it mineral? Now, although from the chemical point of view we are chiefly concerned with so-called dead matter, there are many things belonging to the animal and vegetable kingdoms which we must take into consideration. A certain object may be assigned to one of these two kingdoms, not because it is at present alive, but simply because at one time or another in its history it has been a part of a living thing, a plant or an animal. A bone, for example, will be considered to belong to the animal kingdom, although in itself it is as dead as a doornail, apart from the living and throbbing body of which it was a member. A tree that refuses to become green under the touch of spring would still be regarded as vegetable, although so far as growth is concerned it might as well be a block of granite. What makes all the difference between the mineral kingdom on the one hand and the animal and vegetable kingdoms on the other hand is the mysterious thing called life, not the mere materials of which the various objects are built up. It is no doubt true that the materials associated with plants and animals, and thus involved in the processes of life, are frequently of a special kind, and this is indicated by describing them as of organic origin, in contrast to the inorganic substances which are more especially characteristic of the mineral kingdom. It used to be thought up to about one hundred years ago that organic substances could be produced only under the influence of life, but this has been found to be a mistaken view. The chemist can produce organic substances in the laboratory, starting with inorganic materials, and the organic substances so produced are the same in all respects as those formed in the living organism. But however much the chemist may pride himself on his achievements in building up organic substances, there is one thing he has not been able to do, and that is to produce an organism, even of the most elementary kind. Life, which makes all the difference between the organic substances and the organism, is apparently beyond the resources of human manufacture, its origin must be traced to a higher source. A little thought will suffice to remind us of the diverse material used in building up our world, both organic and inorganic. Besides the coal and the minerals which we extract from below the crust, and the many things which we grow on the surface of this little island, we have at our disposal nowadays the products of the ends of the earth in all their variety. But a little simplification may be introduced into this extraordinary diversity when we bear in mind that the chemist has been able to split up most of the complex substances with which we are familiar. He has shown that by various agencies, such as, for example, the action of heat, a complex substance may be broken up into simpler substances, these latter into still simpler ones, and so on. At last we arrive in this way at an irreducible minimum of substances which obstinately refuse to break up into anything simpler, and which cannot be converted into each other. These elements, as the chemist calls them, are, so to speak, the bricks out of which all known substances are built up. They number about seventy, and each kind of brick possesses characteristics which distinguish it from all the other kinds. That being so, it is not difficult to understand how the combination of the elements leads to all the infinite variety of nature, for the reader will see at once that if he was provided with seventy kinds of bricks, each kind with its own characteristic shade of color, and if he was required to put together a structure containing at least two kinds of bricks, and up to, say, any number of bricks of each kind, there would be a countless host of products. Now what are these seventy fundamental substances? Many of them are familiar to the reader, by name at least. For example, lead, sulfur, gold, copper, phosphorus, oxygen, mercury, tin, 
hydrogen, silver, and carbon. But quite half, probably, of the elements are unknown, even by name, to the ordinary individual, whilst to the chemist himself they are frequently not much more than names. And this is not to be wondered at, for the importance of some of the elements, judged by the part they play in the building up of the world and in the service of man, is extremely small. Thus glucinium, gallium, scandium, and many others would not be much missed were they to disappear altogether from the family of the elements. Anyone who wants to understand something of the fascinating science of chemistry must be quite clear about the part played by the elements and about the relations in which they stand to the infinite variety of naturally occurring substances. Amongst the elements themselves there is great diversity. Some are gaseous substances, like oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, chlorine, and helium. Two are liquids under ordinary conditions, namely mercury and bromine, while the great majority, chiefly metals, are solid substances. But this division of the elements into gaseous, liquid, and solid substances is somewhat arbitrary, and is valid only for the particular conditions which prevail on our earth. On the heavenly bodies, which are much hotter than our planet, many of the elements with which we are familiar as solids exist in the gaseous condition. In the extraordinary heat which prevails on the sun, even iron is a vapor. It must be borne in mind that the elements are found in nature mostly in some form of mutual combination. Only a few of them occur in the uncombined state, or native as it is called. The noble metals and some other elements, such as copper, sulfur, oxygen, and nitrogen, belong to the latter class, but the minerals composing the great bulk of the earth's crust are combinations of other elements with oxygen and sulfur. The fact that some elements never occur in the native condition becomes intelligible when we make ourselves acquainted with the properties of these elements. Take the case of phosphorus. The chemist has been able, by certain subtle processes, to extract this element from the ashes of bones, but it has such an aversion to the state of single blessedness that unless precautions are taken to keep it out of contact with air, it reverts to the combined state and unites with the oxygen of the atmosphere. It is therefore easily understood why phosphorus is never found native, and a similar explanation is forthcoming in the case of other elements. It may occur to the reader to ask, is it quite certain that the so-called elements represent the ultimate units of which the natural world is built up? Is it not possible that some substances which are at present regarded as elements, may turn out to be combinations of other elements? This is perfectly possible, but not very probable. It is certainly true that water, soda, and potash, which up to 100 or 120 years ago were regarded as elements, were then found to be really compound substances, and it is conceivable that a similar thing might happen again. But it is less likely nowadays, for a substance which has to run the gauntlet of the chemist's modern methods of attack can scarcely pass unscathed unless it is really of an elementary character. On the question of how far the present accepted list of elements is to be regarded as final, the discovery of radium has thrown an interesting and somewhat startling light, for it appears that radium, although an element in the commonly accepted meaning of the word, is undergoing continuous transformation into other elements, the gas helium being one of the products of change. The idea that one element could be transformed into another was cherished by the alchemists, as we have seen, but the whole course of chemical progress in the last century was against the acceptance of that idea, and just as chemists were getting settled in their minds about that important question, radium came along and introduced an air of uncertainty again into the whole business. If it should turn out that one element can actually be converted into another, as radium appears to be changed into helium, there will be some support given to the hypothesis that the elements are simply modifications of one original parent substance. 
This plausible suggestion was made long ago, and has been revived at occasional intervals, but the evidence of experiment has so far been against its acceptance. In the earlier part of this chapter, the elements have been frequently referred to as existing in a state of combination, in the form of compound substances. Now a compound of two elements is something quite different from a mere mixture. The two elements which combine do so in a very thorough and intimate fashion, with the result that each, as it were, loses its own individuality, and an entirely new individual, with other characteristics, is produced. The two differently colored bricks, which we may suppose to represent the two elements, are not merely laid side by side so that we could lift the one away from the other without any trouble, but they are fused and coalesced in some mysterious manner into one new brick, different in shape and color from each of the two original ones. The only statement we can make with certainty about the new brick is that its weight is equal to the sum of the weights of the two component bricks. It is very interesting to observe that in some cases we can start with two elements and make either a mixture or a compound of them. Two such elements are iron and sulfur. If the iron is taken in the form of fine filings, which are gray in color, and if these are intimately mixed by grinding with sulfur, which is yellow, a powder is obtained which is intermediate in color between gray and yellow. In this mechanical mixture each component retains its own characteristics just as if the other were not there. The particles of iron can be drawn out of the mixture with a magnet. The particles of sulfur can be dissolved out by using a suitable liquid. The reader will therefore see that it is a comparatively easy matter to separate the components of a mechanical mixture. Suppose now that some of the iron-sulfur mixture is put in a tube and that the tube is heated by a flame at one end. Something of importance obviously takes place, for the contents of the tube above the flame begin to glow vigorously and are raised to a white heat. Even if the tube is no longer heated externally, the flame being removed, the glowing continues until the zone of incandescence has passed right through from one end of the iron-sulfur mixture to the other. This extraordinary display of energy is evidence that the iron and sulfur are combining chemically, and if the product is examined when it has cooled, it will be found that a new substance with entirely different properties has indeed been produced. There are no iron particles now to be attracted by the magnet and no liquid can be found which will extract the sulfur and leave the iron behind. The iron and sulfur particles are no longer lying side by side. They have united and coalesced to form a compound, sulfide of iron, the properties of which are quite different from those of iron and sulfur. Countless other illustrations might be cited of the fundamental difference between a mere mixture of two elements and a chemical compound of the two. A familiar case is gunpowder. This is a mechanical mixture of sulfur, carbon, and nitre, and it is only when the gunpowder is fired that the real chemical process begins. This process results in the production of a number of new substances, gases, absolutely different from the original constituents of the gunpowder. Apart from the thoroughgoing change of properties which accompanies the combination of two elements, chemists have discovered some very remarkable facts bearing on the proportions by weight in which combination takes place. Elements are exceedingly particular as to how far they give themselves away, and nothing will persuade them to go more than a certain distance in meeting the advances of other elements. When iron and sulfur combine, they do so in the proportion of seven parts of iron to four parts of sulfur. If a mixture of eight ounces of iron with four ounces of sulfur were heated, nothing would induce that extra ounce of iron to give up its independence and enter the compound. And similarly, if we took a mixture of seven ounces of iron with five ounces of sulfur, the extra ounce of sulfur would absolutely refuse to be anything else than sulfur. 
so that elements combine in perfectly definite proportions. However or wherever a compound is produced, in the laboratory of the chemist or in the laboratory of nature, it invariably consists of the same elements united in exactly the same proportions. There are cases, indeed, in which two elements unite to form more than one compound. Thus there are two oxides of copper, one containing eight parts by weight of copper to two parts by weight of oxygen, and another containing eight parts of copper to one of oxygen. Observe that the amount of oxygen uniting with eight parts of copper must be either one or two. No compound can be formed containing between one and two parts of oxygen to eight parts of copper. And this is merely an example of what is always found to be the case. When one element combines with another element to form more than one compound, the amounts of the second element which combine with the definite weight of the first element are as one to two or two to three, some simple ratio of that sort. These remarkable facts about the proportions in which the elements combine were discovered soon after the balance had become part of the regular equipment of a laboratory, and chemists began to cast about for an explanation. The result was that they came to regard matter as made up of separate particles of extremely small size, called molecules, which were incapable of further division except by chemical means. A fragment of iron, if magnified sufficiently, would thus resemble a heap of cannonballs, each cannonball representing a molecule. It must be remembered, of course, that this is only a theory, a picture, for nobody has ever divided matter so finely that further division was impossible. A single separate molecule has never been picked out. Indeed, it must be much smaller than anything that has ever been seen, even under the most powerful microscope. Although the molecule of a substance is the smallest particle of that substance which can exist by itself, it is possible to break it up by chemical means. The chemist's experiments have led him to believe that a molecule consists of so-called atoms, sometimes all of one kind, sometimes of different kinds. When the atoms in a molecule are all of the same kind, it is an element which we are considering. When the atoms are of different kinds, it is a compound. To separate the atoms which are present together in any one molecule, we bring another kind of molecule, with different atoms alongside. In a great many cases the atoms will promptly change partners, and new molecules, that is, new substances, are produced. Suppose, for example, we bring together a molecule AB, containing one atom A and one atom B, and another molecule CD, containing one atom C and one atom D. Then a chemical reaction will take place, resulting in the formation of two new molecules, AC and BD, or possibly AD and BC. This way of picturing the constitution of matter enables us to explain the definite proportions in which elements are found to combine. Take the case of copper and oxygen, already mentioned. Chemists have come to the conclusion that the atom of copper is four times as heavy as the atom of oxygen. Now the simplest way in which combination could take place would be by one atom of copper joining with one atom of oxygen to form one particle or molecule, as it is called, of copper oxide. Each molecule, therefore, of copper oxide would contain four parts by weight of copper to one part of oxygen, or, what is the same thing, eight parts by weight of copper to two parts of oxygen. And what has been said of each separate molecule may be said also of the mass of copper oxide, which is simply the sum total of the myriad separate molecules. The proportion of copper to oxygen in the mass of copper oxide would be the same as in each individual molecule. Remembering that the atoms are indivisible, we can easily see that the next simplest ways in which copper could combine with oxygen would be by two atoms of copper joining with one atom of oxygen, or by one atom of copper joining with two atoms of oxygen. 
the atom of copper being four times as heavy as the atom of oxygen, the first of these two compounds would contain eight parts by weight of copper to one part of oxygen, while the second would contain eight parts by weight of copper to four parts of oxygen. As mentioned above, one of these compounds, the first, has actually been discovered, and it is probable that the second also exists. With the atomic theory of the constitution of matter, therefore, we can explain the very notable simplicity and constancy which characterize the manner of combination of the elements. End of chapter 3